And let's turn to this portion of the word of Christ, which we find in 2 Kings, and 2 Kings chapter 3 is our text for today. 2 Kings chapter 3, the entire chapter, it's kind of hard to break up, so we'll read all 27 verses, then uh, pray for God's help once again, and then uh, consider it together. Let's give our, uh, our full attention now, once again, to the reading of God's word. 2 Kings chapter 3. The entire chapter. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, By which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, By the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here, through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the kings, uh, king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom, till the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning, and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Haraseth. And the slingers surrounded it and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, let's pray for God's blessing upon the preaching of this word. 
Our Heavenly Father, we've already asked you to speak through your word to us, for us to hear the voice of our Savior, even to have our Savior and all of the grace that comes with him be imparted to us through this means of grace. We simply ask for that once again. We are dependent entirely upon your Spirit for uh, the blessing of this means of grace. So give us of your Spirit now. Create faith where it is lacking. Strengthen faith where it is weak. Pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, after just picking up in the context here, and by the way, uh, I was kind of thinking recently, all of the strangest parts of these passages of Scripture are at the very end. And I was thinking, man, that's kind of interesting. Then I thought, you know, maybe that's a good thing. It's like you're wondering what that was going, you have to sit through the whole sermon to find out now, because it's coming at the very end. <laughs> we would go through it chronologically. Uh, but just to, to pick up within context here, after the, the brief interlude of chapter 2 that was dealing with the, the transition in the prophetic office from Elijah to Elisha, which is what we looked at last week, and really it is an interlude, right? In, in the, the typical history that we have in the book of Kings, we read about the death of one king of Israel in, uh, at the end of chapter 1. If chapter 2 didn't even exist, we probably would not bat an eyelash and it would just go on to, to chapter 3 and now we're reading about the reign of the, the second king, the next king. But this interlude, after that, this uh, typical history recommences. We get the standard announcement at the beginning of, uh, of, of this chapter of the reign of a new king in Israel relative to the concurrent king of Judah, right? And the, this and this year of the king of Judah, this king of Israel began to reign, and he reigns for so many years. And then we also get the, the standard overall evaluation of, of his reign in verses 2 and 3. And then the rest of this chapter... And again, this is kind of typical to an extent. The rest of this chapter records one particular episode in the reign of this new king that is illustrative of his, his character and of his, his reign. Uh, this new king of the northern kingdom uh, of Israel is Jehoram. And we read uh, in, well, we read in chapter 1 of the, the brief two-year reign of Ahaziah, the son of Ahab and Jezebel, but that he had died and he had no son to, to take his throne after him. And so the crown passes now to not his son, but to his younger brother, to Jehoram. So Jehoram is also a son of Ahab and Jezebel. So again, we probably don't have very high expectations of him, <laughs> but he's not the son of Ahaziah. He's the younger brother of, of Ahaziah who died childless. He's going to reign, however, for 12 years. And, and we will actually read quite a bit about events that occur during his reign, especially with the, the ministry of Elisha. Right? So this is the king that, that reigns primarily during the, the, reign, uh, the, the ministry of Elisha. We're not actually going to read about Jehoram's death until chapter 10. So everything from chapter 3 to chapter 10 is stuff that's occurring during Jehoram's 12-year reign. But again, it's going to focus primarily on the ministry of, of Elisha. But as I said, the, the bulk of this chapter records one particular incident in Jehoram's reign that gives us a pretty good idea of what kind of man he was, what kind of king he was. And this incident is triggered by a rebellion of the king of Moab, a king named Mesha. Uh, the territory of Moab, we can get our geography straight again. Uh, the territory of Moab lay east of the northern kingdom of Israel across the Jordan River. Right, so it's across the Jordan River east of, of the kingdom of Israel. And it was, at this time, subject to the kingdom of Israel. Uh, its king was forced to pay an annual tribute here in the form of lambs and, uh, and ram skins, <laughs> you know, the wool from, from rams, right? That was their primary export in Moab, and so they're going to pay their, their tribute, an annual tribute. And it's quite a stiff tribute, 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. So they're subject to Israel. Uh, they are having to pay tribute to Israel. Now, I, I just have to 
briefly mention this because it's interesting. One of these days in Sunday school, we're going to do a, a brief series on like biblical archaeology. Because I, I do think it's very interesting, not just interesting, but it's very confirming of the faith. This is one of these instances where we know about this whole situation from extra biblical evidence. In fact, it's one of the most important artifacts of biblical archaeology ever. It's called uh, either the Moabite stone or it's called the, the Mesha stele. I think stele is how you're supposed to pronounce that. It's S-T-L-E. It's like a, a stone that's covered in, in carving. And, and wood. So it's a, but it's called not just the Moabite stone, but it's the, the Mesha stele, which means it was written by this exact king of Moab, Mesha, that we're reading about. And it actually describes this whole situation. It describes the history of Israel's subjection of, uh, of Moab. And he says that happened in the days of Omri. You remember Omri was uh, Ahab's father. And so all during the reign of Omri and then all during the reign of Ahab, Ahab, again, for all of his personal flaws, was actually a very strong and competent king. And he was able to keep Moab in, in subjection to him and a few other kingdoms as well. And they would pay him this tribute. But then we read, the first thing after we read of Ahab's death in chapter 1, verse 1, is that after the death of Ahab, Moab rebels, right? The king of Moab apparently takes advantage of this transition in the kingship, this period of instability that always occurred. And he's like, okay, well, this is the time we're going to stop sending our, our tribute. We're going to rebel against, uh, against Israel. Now, again, the Moabite stone records all of that. It was found in the 19th century by an Anglican missionary in that area in what's modern Jordan, the kingdom of Jordan, so where the territory of Moab was. Uh, it's, it's in the Louvre now, so maybe someday I'll get to go see it. Uh, it'd be kind of cool. But it's, it's also significant, and you can go look it up. I'll stop talking about it. But uh, the other fact that it's a reason why it's so significant, it's the, the earliest extra-biblical testimony to the name of Israel's God, Yahweh. It's the first, the earliest time outside of the Bible that we see Israel's God identified as, as Yahweh, or as Jehovah as it used to be <laughs> written out. Uh, so it's, it's significant, but it just shows this is real history. All of these things <laughs> happened. All of these people uh, existed, and uh, it, it all makes perfect sense given what we, we know. So uh, Moab rebels, uh, Jehoram asks uh, the king of Judah, still Jehoshaphat, to join with him in attacking Moab and try to resubjugate them. Uh, Jehosh Jehoshaphat agrees. He also gets his vassal, so a, a king that was subject to him, the king of Edom. And again, the, kingdom, uh, the territory of Edom was south of the territory of Moab. So again, across the Jordan, but in, in the south of that. And uh, he gets the king of Edom. So you've got these three kings, and they formed this coalition together, and now they're marching to, to Moab. They decide to, to get to Moab by going south around the Dead Sea and then up to attack Moab from, from the south, which all the evidence we have is that most of his fortifications were on the northern border. So this all makes perfect sense. Uh, however, that whole area of Edom is incredibly arid. <laughs> it's, it's right around the Dead Sea. Very few sources of, of fresh water, especially in the dry season. Right? Sometimes there would be these streams that would flow if it had rained recently, but it's apparently not that season. Uh, they go for seven days and they're, they've run out of water and they know they're going to be in such a weakened state when they get to Moab that Moab's just going to defeat them. So that's, that's what's happening. That's the setup here. Uh, but what, what's the point of it all? You know, why out of, I'm sure, the many, many events of uh, Jehoram's life and reign <coughs> is this one chosen? Why is this event significant? Because purely from a historical perspective, this whole campaign really isn't that significant. This is the type of, of, of squabbling that happened between these minor kingdoms in the ancient Near East all the time, especially in between the, the major empires. So this happened all the time. We've read about similar things between Ahab and the king of Syria. Why is this significant? It's not really significant um, historically. But these three kings, as they're wandering in the desert, they meet a prophet, a prophet of God. And that's when things become theologically significant. 
because the prophet of God, again, as we've seen throughout this section, throughout the story of Elijah, and now into the story of Elisha, we're going to see a lot of the same themes come up during the, the ministry of Elijah, now uh, reiterated in the ministry of Elisha. The prophet of God represents the word of God. Right? The prophet of God represents the word of God, and it's how these kings relate to the word of God that makes this event instructive and illustrative and relevant, yes, even still to us today. So that's how we're going to divide up this chapter, by looking at three different kings and their respective relationships to the prophet of God, but more broadly to the word of God. So how do they relate to, to the word of God? And we'll begin then with the first of these kings that we meet in this chapter, King Jehoram. So King Jehoram and the word of God, and I've described his relationship here as peril in indecision. So Jehoram and the word of God, peril in indecision. Uh, I, I've characterized Jehoram's relationship to the word of God here as one of indecision, or probably better would be the word irresolution. Irresolution. Uh, and I've, I've chosen those words rather than, as with his parents, Ahab and Jezebel, or even with his older brother Ahaziah, I more often use their, describe their relationship to the word of God as one of just defiance, of <laughs> just open, flat-out rebellion and, and rejection. A uh, little bit softer here, maybe, in this, uh, in this language with Jehoram. And, uh, and I've done that because of how Jehoram is described for us in verses 2 and 3. So this is where we're going to start off. Yes, overall, as with all of the other northern kings, his life is described as he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Right? Overall, yes, this was a bad king. There were no good kings in the north. Uh, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That is his ultimate testimony. That is his ultimate memorial. He was one of the kings that did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet, he was not quite as bad as Ahab and Jezebel and Ahaziah. And that's explicitly what, what's told to us. Verse 2, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though, only, there's kind of two exceptions given here, this is only, not like his father and mother, so not like Ahab and Jezebel, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made, but sadly it still goes on. Nevertheless, again, the word only, only he still clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Right? So it's all right. Overall, he's evil, yet not exactly like Ahab and Jezebel, which again, that's kind of viewed them and then Ahaziah after them almost worse. But their reigns put together the absolute low point, darkest spiritual point in the Northern Kingdom's history. Uh, so it's not great praise. <laughs> this is kind of damning with faint praise. Uh, he was evil. He just wasn't quite as evil as Ahab and Jezebel and, and maybe Ahaziah before him. And why? Well, it says he, he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Now, this doesn't mean that he completely did away with all Baal worship in the northern kingdom. That's not the case. We're going to see Baalism is still very much alive and well in the northern kingdom. It's permitted. It's even encouraged by the king still. But it means, remember what the distinction was with Ahab and Jezebel, while they were even worse than Jehoram and all the kings after him, is that they tried to do away entirely with the worship of the one true God, Yahweh. They didn't just add other gods and worship other gods and worship in other ways than what God had, had commanded himself to be worshipped. That was what Jeroboam did and all of the kings that followed him. That's why, again, each one of these kings, they walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, which he made Israel to sin. And what was that? Not completely doing away with the worship of Yahweh, but worshiping him in a way that he had not commanded, and allowing the worship of other gods, right? The Baals and the Asherah, keeping the high places, keeping these, these other altars and places of worship. But, right, they, they were just like the pagans around them. They would worship all the gods just to cover all of their bases. Ahab and Jezebel had tried to completely do away, slaughter all the prophets of Yahweh, completely do away with the worship of Yahweh and Israel, and completely replace 
Yahweh as Israel's national God with Baal as their national God. And so that's the caveat we're given. <laughs> so it means that probably in the time of, of, uh, of Jehoram, he allowed, began to tolerate the worship of Yahweh uh, again. But he worshipped him in the way that Jeroboam had done. Right? So it's not quite as bad, but it's still overall bad. It is, it is evil. He's not excused by it. We're just said, all right, he, uh, he just wasn't quite as deeply in sin and in idolatry as, uh, as his father and mother. Uh, he does seem, even here, to, yes, acknowledge Yahweh. And acknowledge Yahweh even to the point of admitting that Yahweh is, is strong enough, he's sovereign enough to be in control of some of these events. Right, because we see that. So he's, he's, he's worshipping Yahweh along with other gods, ostensibly, but in the wrong way. But he does acknowledge him. Now, he doesn't inquire of Yahweh and of his word before he begins this campaign. Again, that's what the kings of Israel were supposed to do. But when his plan goes awry, right, when they're about to die of, uh, of thirst in the wilderness, what does he say? He says, alas, verse 10, the Lord, Yahweh, has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. So he at least acknowledges God's, Yahweh's sovereignty and power enough to blame him for the situation that he's gotten himself into. <laughs> but he's, he's acknowledging Yahweh. And even when he, he is kind of forced to inquire of the word of Yahweh through his true prophet, uh, what does Elisha say to him in verse 13? What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. He's saying, go inquire of the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the Ashtoreth. But even still, what does Jer uh, Jehoram say? He says, no, I want to inquire of Yahweh because Yahweh is the reason we're in this situation. So again, he's still blaming him, but he is insisting on on consulting with the word of, of Yahweh. So again, not much, but is at least acknowledging him and is at least permitting some of Yahweh's worship anyway. And that's, that's ultimately why I've chosen the descriptor of indecision or irresolution to describe Jehoram's relationship with the word of God. Maybe it's not strong enough, but it, what does he do? He, he waffles, he goes back and forth. He's never fully committed one way or the other. Really, in essence, you know, he accepts part of God's word, but not all of it, right? He, he knows he should worship Yahweh, at least partially, right? Again, even if they think of him just as the pagan national deities of the other nations, but he knows he should worship Yahweh, first commandment, right? But he wants to worship him in his own way, on his own terms, the way that Jeroboam had, had devised out of his own heart, you remember. So he's like, I'll take part of the first commandment, but not so much that, that second commandment, right? Again, it's, it's probably political. He doesn't want his subjects going to Yahweh's true temple in his true chosen city in Jerusalem three times a year. Well, they'll remember that there's a true Davidic king still on the throne down there. No, so we're going to worship the, the, the golden calves of Jeroboam in, in my temples with my priests. So he's, he's accepting part of God's word, not all of it. Again, he doesn't consult the word of God before he decides to set out on his ex ex expedition. But when he gets into trouble, he knows, uh, he wants to know then what God says. Right? So in, in a sense, it's this indecision. It's this waffling between this, this, this in irresolution with his relationship with the word of God. Now, are there still people like this today? Yeah, absolutely. Are there even many professing Christians like this today? That's funny. We were just talking, Walter, in between the service of a young lady he was interacting with who, no, I believe the Bible, just this part, not this part, this part, not this part. You know, it's what we talked about in Sunday school. What is true saving faith? It, it, it believes the whole word of God, whatever the word of God says for the authority of God itself. But yeah, there are many, and, and again, can we even sometimes be guilty of this kind of half-hearted commitment, this sort of irresolution in our relationship to the Word of God as well? But there are people like this. They accept the authority of God's Word, but they also think, well, maybe there are other authorities out there that are just as good. And so we kind of pick and choose. I'll take go with the Bible on this part, but I'll go with something else on, on this. Uh, they 
pick and choose which parts of the Bible they think they need to believe or obey. They think maybe the rest is, is a bit outdated. Again, they don't consult God's word before they make their decisions. But then when those decisions get them into trouble, like Jehoram, then they want to know what God's word says, even if it's just to find out if it's got any good advice and how to get them out of the mess that they've made for themselves, but not consulting with the word of God in the first place. Right? So it's starting to resonate a little bit. Sadly, even be a bit convicting. Uh, I think all of us might be guilty of this kind of indecision, this kind of irresolution in our relationship to the word of God as well. And make no mistake, we do this to our peril. And that's what we see. How, because of this indecision, where does Jehoram wind up? In, in peril. And I say not just the physical peril of the lack of water, but grave spiritual peril as well. What happens when he goes to the man of God? Man of God initially just rejects him. What do I have to do with you? Well, he's the king of God's people. It should be something, but he's, because of this, his, his indecision with the word of God, he's in grave spiritual danger. There is grave spiritual danger in this lack of complete submission, a lack of complete obedience to God's word. God demands total submission to his word and to every part of his word. Again, I had said that Jeroboam wasn't as bad as his parents and his brother, but ultimately, that's not the standard by which he or anyone else will be judged. We're not going to be judged by how well we did in comparison with other sinners. What are we going to be judged according to? According to the standard of God's word, what God has revealed in his word. And when we measure ourselves up against that standard, on well, all of us must confess in and of ourselves, we all fall far short. And so we all deserve the same kind of judgment that Jeroboam or Je uh, Jehoram uh, was worthy of here. Ultimately, it must be said of all of us that we have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, that's the, that's the standard. It's, it's according to God and the standard that he has revealed in his word. And ultimately, this indecision, this partial obedience of Jehoram will land us in just as much peril as does the blatant defiance of Ahab. So, King Jehoram and the word of God, peril in indecision, in this in uh, irresolution with respect to the word of God. That's King Jehoram. But there is a second king who... We see his relationship with the word of God here as well. So let's move on to the second king. And this is King Jehoshaphat and the word of God. King Jehoshaphat and the word of God. And I've characterized his relationship to the word of God here as that of mercy in imperfection. <laughs> mercy in imperfection. Now, we've met Jehoshaphat before. And we've met him, sadly, in very similar circumstances. In my sermon on Jehoshaphat at the end of 1 Kings, probably a month and a half ago or so now, I had characterized Jehoshaphat as a, as a king of compromise. Now again, overall, he is described as one who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So that's his overall characterization. But uh, every time we see him, at least in Kings, there's a, a degree of compromise about him. Uh, he's, he's not fulfilling, doing what God's word requires of him in every way. And here he is at it again, again in compromise. He had allied, if you remember, he had allied with Ahab, that, that wicked king, in his ill-fated war against the king of Syria. Uh, Jehoshaphat had just made it out of there by the skin of his teeth. Ahab had been killed. Then Jehoshaphat had allied with Ahaziah, in their ill-fated scheme to get gold by ship. Remember, because of that ungodly alliance, God had wrecked those ships. And now he's allying with Jehoram in what seems to be another ill-fated enterprise. Right? He, he doesn't seem to learn his lesson. You shouldn't ally yourself with evil kings. You should not compromise with the enemies of God. 
especially not in such strong terms. Really, this is r- remarkable. What does he say when, when uh, Jehoram comes to him? Will you go with me to battle against Moab? He doesn't just say, okay, yes. He says, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Better hope that was more strong than what he actually thought. I am as you are. Now, these words should sound familiar. The exact same words that Jehoshaphat said to Ahab when Ahab asked him to go into battle with him against the Syrians. Again, this isn't just a a military alliance for mutual benefit. This This is kinship with the enemies of God, with these wicked kings. And yes, it was wrong. And again, we can pick up that it's wrong from the book of Kings. The book of Chronicles confirms that. Because of these alliances, prophets of God come and, and, uh, and, and confront Jehoshaphat. So yes, this is compromise. This is, this is sinful. This is wrong. Again, if he really is just as Jehoram is, then he deserves the same judgment. They both of them then deserve to die of thirst in, in the desert. And yet, what do we see? Both of them receive mercy instead. Both of them receive mercy. And, and why? Well, ultimately, it's because of God's mercy to Jehoshaphat, right? To his king, right? The true Davidic king. It's simply because Jehoshaphat is there, right? Jehoshaphat, though imperfect, though far from perfect, is nonetheless still sincere in his worship of God and in his desire to obey God's word. Again, overall, how is he remembered? As one that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, as Jehoshaphat did with Ahab, uh, he's the one who reminds everyone of their duty to consult the word of God. Right Here they are in this mess. Yes, they should have consulted the word of God beforehand, but now at least, it's better late than never, I guess, let's consult with the word of God. And once again, he speaks the exact same words as he did back in, in 1 Kings 22. Uh, verse 11, Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here, of Yahweh here, through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Right? So at least he realizes the mistake and tries to correct it. He, did, he is sincere in his desire to obey the word. Amazingly enough, then, he asked the question, Is there no prophet of, of Yahweh here? You might think, well, yeah, no, you're in the middle of the desert, <laughs> in the middle of Edom. Where are you going to find a prophet of Yahweh? And yet a prophet of Yahweh is there at hand. Why was Elisha out there? Well, <laughs> I assume it has to be because God told him to go out there. Uh, but God provides, and that in itself is mercy, right? They they should have been far from the the, the counsel of the word of God, and yet... When they finally decide we need to consult, God's word is there, right? The, 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 the word of, um, or the description of Jehoshaphat in verse 12, when he hears Elisha's there, the, the successor to Elijah, what does he say? The word of the Lord is with him. Right? So the word of the Lord is with him, which means the word of the Lord is still at least with us. It's, it's with me. We can consult it. That in itself is mercy. And yet there's still more mercy to come. After reminding Jehoram of his unworthiness to be heard by God, uh, right, Elisha, what do I have to do with you? He's talking to Jehoram. He's talking to the king of Israel. Go consult your false prophets. Again, he insists, no, it's the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. We want to hear from Yahweh. And Elisha says, verse 14, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, Were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. And you know, that's exactly what Jehoram deserved. He didn't deserve to have the word of God, you know, to the right to consult of the word of God at any time because he ignored it most of the time. He deserved to be abandoned. Yet there is mercy. Again, keep in mind why. It's because of the Davidic king that's with him that he receives mercy. Uh, but uh, Elisha finally says, all right, I'll, I'll try. <laughs> and, uh, and then you get verse uh, 15 with this enigmatic connection between prophecy and music here. 
Uh, again, I love disappointing you when you've got questions, but uh, what's this connection here between music and, and prophecy, right? Elisha says, all right, get me a musician. And when the music begins to play, then the hand of the Lord comes upon him and he receives a, a message from God. Uh, now, of course, we, we know this connection between music and prophecy. It's not immediate. It's not magical. Elisha didn't have to put himself into some kind of mystical trance in order to receive a, a message from God like pagan seers in the day would do. Uh, perhaps it's just symbolic. And we see it in a few other places uh, in scripture. Or maybe it was just more psychological, if you can use that word. Right? Elisha is obviously upset, uh, right? He he responds with this, this sort of anger in response to Jehoram and his his kind of impertinence in, in, in seeking, inquiring of the word of the Lord when he's lived in such rebellion against the, the word of God. Uh, maybe Elisha realized he just needed to put some music on to calm himself down a little bit so that he could be more in a, a fitting frame of mind to receive a message from God. Maybe it's just as simple as that. But either way, God in his mercy gives a message of mercy. Right? Again, it's even mercy to speak to, to these kings, but he, he promises more mercy. Read verses 16 and 17 again. And he said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you will not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink you, your livestock and your animals. Now, again, he, he just wants to go out of his way to prove this is me. This is miraculous. I'm going to give you water and I'm going to do it without even sending rain. Right. So you can't just think, oh, well, that was coincidence or, oh, no, maybe it was Baal. Right. The God of storms. Maybe he had mercy on us. Nope. There's no other explanation of this other than the true God of water, the true God of fertility and life, the true God of all who is Yahweh. That's been one of the major themes of this whole uh, passage, this whole section of Elijah and Elisha's ministries. But he, he, he gives this water. And he not only does that, his mercy doesn't even stop there. He's not only going to give them the water that they don't deserve, but he's also promising then to give them success and victory in their overall endeavor. Right? He goes, he says, okay, I'll give you the, what you're asking for, which was the water, but I'll also give the Moabites into your hand. I love verse, verse 18. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. And he's going to give them a complete sweeping victory as he goes on to, to give details of that. So this mercy upon mercy. And, and then I, I just love this. This is a, a twist that our sovereign God loves to bring about. Uh, it's, it's not what you see coming. Like he's promised water and he's promised victory over the Moabites. We think those are two separated things. God actually ties them together. <laughs> right? He gives the water. And then during the night, when the stream bed miraculously fills with water without any storm, without any, any rain, uh, he uses that water not just to sustain the lives of his people, but actually to give them victory over Moab. I just love this story. Right? The Moabites wake up in the morning, the sun is rising, and it shines on this water that wasn't there before, and, and it looks red. It looks as red as blood to them. They assume that it is blood. And they think, oh, these three kings fought against each other. They've slaughtered each other. And now there's just spoil sitting there free for the taking. And so they rush in unprepared, unsuspecting, and they themselves get slaughtered and they get routed. And the Israelites go forth and again, do exactly what God had promised. Not just a victory there in that battle, but they go on to destroy the rest of the cities of the Moabites and then we'll, we'll pick up the story after that. But it, what is this? It's just mercy upon mercy, right? For these kings, even for an irresolute king, but ultimately for an imperfect yet sincere king. And again, this is it's just given to us to, to comfort us. And it is a comfort to all of us who, like Jehoshaphat, are not perfect. Fact, we are far from perfect, and yet, by God's grace, fundamentally sincere in our desire to obey the word of God. 
yes, we will all fall short. And yes, those shortcomings, those failings, fully deserve God's judgment. They do. Again, going back to our confession, at the end of chapter 6, even the sins of, of the regenerate are still truly and properly sin. Uh, and yet, for those who truly fear him, as Psalm 103, many other places, words it, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who, who fear him. Right? Those who fundamentally, sincerely do fear him and want to obey his word. And yet, he knows we're children. We're going to mess up. And as a father with his wayward, stupid children, he has compassion on them. And it goes on. For what? He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Right? And he delights to show mercy to his children despite our many, many imperfections. And let's call them what they are. They're not just imperfections. They're sins, truly and properly sin. But he delights to show his mercy to his children who fundamentally fear him even though they still sin, like Jehoshaphat. And he delights even to heap mercy upon mercy, right? As he does here. It's not only mercy to, to give his message to these people, to give them hope, but then to provide that water, but then to provide them the, the completely unexpected victory over the Moabites, even by means of, of that water. We may, as the kings do here, ask for one mercy that we don't deserve. And not only does God give that mercy to us, but he goes on to give us more mercy. Right? He says to us, like he says here, all right, you've asked for that mercy, you don't deserve it, I'm going to do it for you nonetheless. But this is a light thing in the eyes of the Lord. That's nothing. I'm also going to give you this other mercy. Right? It's like he, he says to us, that, you know, that's, you've asked for that, well, that's nothing, my child. That's, that's nothing. Just see how merciful, how good and gracious I can really be. Again, how many times have we experienced that? We ask for one mercy. We know because of our remaining sins, we don't deserve that mercy. And God goes, well, as Paul says, above and beyond all that we can ask or even think. A merciful God to even uh, those who are imperfect in their relationship to his, his word. Praise be to God for such a, a merciful God, even to us imperfect, undeserving children. But that brings us to our third and final king and his relationship to God's word. And the third and final king, you might be expecting this to be the king of Edom, right? He's the other king that's involved in this alliance, but he doesn't really play much of a factor here, other than he's probably another pagan king. Maybe he sees all this happening, but we're not really told much about the king of Edom here. The, the third and final king that I want to focus on and his relationship to the word of God is King Mesha, right? the king of Moab, the one who started all of this in the first place. King Mesha and the word of God, and I've, I've labeled his relationship here. Uh, we've seen peril in indecision with uh, Jehoram. We've seen mercy in imperfection with Jehoshaphat's relationship to the word of God. But I would, I would phrase King Mesha and his relationship to the word of God as, as just tragedy in ignorance. Right? What is Mesha's relationship to the word of God? It's just absolute, complete ignorance. Right? He, he doesn't have the word of God. Uh, as far as we know, he knows nothing about the word of God and his law at this time. He's a pagan king. And the result of this absolute ignorance of the word of God is, is tragedy. It's tragedy. And, th and that's really what I think verses 26 and 27 are about. And let me try to show you this briefly. Uh, what happens here? Well, uh, all of the cities of Moab have been leveled, leveled all of their fields, you know, uh, covered in stones, absolute defeat. There's one final stand at his capital city. It's surrounded by slingers, and they're no doubt going to win. So King Mesha realizes this is his last chance. He does, he tries two things to, in, in his desperation. First, he gets 700 of his best soldiers and he goes for the weakest point in the army, which is the king of Edom, and he tries to break through and escape. That fails. 
the last thing he tries to do is sacrifice his own son. And that's what he's doing here. He's, he's sacrificing his own son. He not only takes his son up onto the city wall in the sight of everyone, probably cuts his son's throat, spills his son's blood. It, it's not just his son. It is his firstborn son. It's the, the heir to his throne, we're told. Right? And this is, this is pagan thinking. Right? Uh, if I really want to manipulate my God into doing something for me, you know, he's not going to be impressed enough by sacrificing my best goat or my best bull. Uh, I'm going to go for the ultimate thing. I'm going to sacrifice my own son, the heir to my throne. And so he slaughters his son. He burns his son's body on the city wall. And what is this? This is ultimately an attempt to get his god, Chemosh, uh, that's the god of the Moabites, to intervene on his behalf, to turn his wrath on his, his enemies, on the Israelites, and drive them away. What's interesting is that it seems to work. Right? What are we told? Uh, I looked at a few other translations. They're all pretty much the same. It says, Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. So the end result is that he gets what he wants. The, the, the armies of Israel withdraw and, and go back home. But what, ha what happens here? What caused this? Now, the, the language is pretty unsuspicious. Unsus what am I saying? Man, specific. There we go. Uh, it's not specific. Uh, man, well, that was weird. Uh, it says, so he offers this burnt offering. There came great wrath against Israel. Now, there's a bunch of different interpretations, possible interpretations here, but they all basically are asking the same questions. Whose wrath and against whom? Uh, and, and I'll sort of demonstrate that briefly. So the first interpretation, possible interpretation, it's Chemosh's wrath against Israel, and somehow he intervenes and sends them packing. Now, that is probably what Mesha thought happened, right? He probably thought this worked, right? Now, is that how the biblical author would describe that? No, <laughs> we're not going to chalk one up for the pagans here. Uh, sadly, there are too many in, in, expositors that argue that. Uh, no, we can rule that one out. Now, the second option is it's Yahweh's wrath against Israel. But again, why? What... <laughs> Why would Yahweh turn his wrath against the Israelites in response to a pagan king sacrifice, offering a human sacrifice of his own child? Um, again, too many issues there. I don't think so. Now, again, admittedly, this language of great wrath normally applies to the wrath of, of Yahweh, the wrath of God. Uh, but to me, that it just doesn't make any sense. Now, the third option is that it's the Moabites' wrath against the Israelites, right? That somehow their king's sacrifice stirred them, filled them up with such anger against the Israelites that they make a rally and they, they send the Israelites packing. Again, there doesn't seem to be much, uh, much of a, an indication of that here in the text. Uh, we're just told that after this happens, the Israelites withdraw, right? They're not driven away. They withdraw and they, and they go home. Um, so that, that leaves us with, I think, the only other viable option. And because I've saved it to last, you know this is the one I take. Now, bear with me for a second. I believe that it's the Israelites' wrath against the Moabites or against Mesha in particular and his action of sacrificing his son. Now, most of the translations say great wrath came against Israel. Uh, that preposition could also, just depending on context, mean it, it came upon them, which means not against them, but, but actually within them, stirred within you know, Great wrath came upon Israel. Now, you would expect that to mean then they attacked with even greater fear and they, and they demolished him. But I, I think in the context and in the broader context of Scripture and, and the overall theology of the Scripture, this is really the only translation that makes sense. They see this heinous act of human sacrifice by this pagan king, and they're so infuriated by it, they're so disgusted by it, 
And keep in mind, these are even the compromised Israelites, right? Not the most righteous people. But even they know this is so far beyond the pale. This is so heinous and disgusting that they just turn around and, 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 and go home. Uh, now, for whatever reasons, you know, but, but just discuss, that's all we're told. Great wrath came upon Israel. And so they withdrew and they went back to their own land. Um, again, I think for those reasons I've mentioned and, and several others that that's the, the point here. But again, in the, in the broader point of this chapter, what, what is this? I said it's, it's tragedy and ignorance. Here's this pagan king, completely ignorant of the word of God, completely without the revelation of God's will. And what is it? It's an, it's an illustration to us of the, the heinous depths to which human depravity can sink, especially when there is no knowledge of God's revealed will. When there's not even a hint of a knowledge of God's revealed will. Right? Mesha had no Elisha. He had no prophet of Yahweh to intervene here. He's in complete ignorance of the will of God. And what does this lead to this absolute tragedy? To him destroying his own life, his own dynasty, and certainly his, his own son. And even Israel, under Jehoram, after the reign of Ahab, still, even with them, them there's, there's enough of the vestiges of the knowledge of God's word that they see that and are absolutely disgusted and, and infuriated by it. Uh, that even these Israelites can recognize how heinous an act that is. Right? Again, we've seen that's part of God's mercy, even to the Israelites, even when Ahab and Jezebel were trying to wipe out the knowledge of Yahweh from Israel. What does God do in his mercy? He sends prophets and he preserves those prophets. What does that mean? He's keeping his word and knowledge of his word alive, even if it's just a small portion. But Moab was in complete ignorance of the word of God and it resulted in this absolute moral tragedy. I would say, you know, to apply it to our day, this is what we're seeing more and more of, I would argue, in our culture around us. Now, again, I'm not one of those that argues that the United States was founded as an explicitly Christian nation, but no one can deny that in past generations, biblical truths, biblical principles have been at the very foundation of so many of our, our framing documents. Everyone used to be, well, almost everyone used to be very familiar with basic biblical morality and, and wisdom. And that has preserved us, I think, thus far. But what are we seeing in our day? We're seeing a descent into deeper and deeper moral madness. You know, things that we all used to just assume everyone agrees on. Now, especially in elite circles, it's all being undermined. And again, there are many reasons for that, but part of that is a deeper and deeper absence of the word of God in not just public life, but in, in individuals' lives. Uh, some of you who were at prayer meeting a few weeks ago, I played a clip from, from Jeopardy just from a, a month or two ago, in which, and again, the people who are on Jeopardy are intelligent, educated people, widely educated. Right? That's the whole point. You know a bunch of different things in a bunch of different categories. And the, the well, the answer, I said the question, the, the answer was in, in, in Matthew 6, Jesus says, Our Father, which art in heaven, blank be thy name. Not only did none of the three contestants get it right, they didn't even try. They just sat there in silence until the time ran up and the, and the beeper went off. I mean, and it just struck me, these are educated people who probably have advanced degrees who, who are in their middle age, like 40s and 50s, who are so biblically illiterate that they don't, they can't even guess at how to fill in the, the Lord's Prayer. And, and again, what does that show? Just this, people used to have basics of biblical morality, but now there is just absolute ignorance of all of that. And I think that's one of the causes for the, the absolute moral madness, right? There was enough of the word of God that it preserves some modicum of moral sanity. It's a general knowledge of God's word. But with that becoming less and less, 
That's the results that we're seeing. And again, we, we look at this, a father sacrificing his son, his firstborn son, uh, in order to, to appease his false god. We see the same moral madness around us now. We could all list examples, but we see people killing their own children to appease their idols. The idols of, of wealth, the idols of career, of status, literally sacrificing their own children as well. Um, it's, it's really no different. And we see all of the other moral chaos around us. Now, how should we respond to that? Again, to see we need the word of God, even in a broader society, to preserve some modicum of, of moral sanity. But yes, these types of things, when we see them, it should cause us a righteous indignation, a righteous wrath. Great wrath came upon Israel in response to that, even compromised as they were. Yes, we should respond with righteous indignation, righteous wrath, but also with, with a deep pity and deep sorrow for those who are so blinded in their sins, who have absolutely no sense of basic morality left. Pity, also humility. Right? Again, that's human depravity and where it goes unless it is stayed by the, the word of God in a society and all of us have to look honestly at our own hearts and say, there but for the grace of God, go I. We can still have righteous indignation and wrath against it, but also pity and humility. I think that's what's being communicated here at the very end of this chapter. But that's what it's about. Not a very his significant historical event, but an event that's very theologically significant. It's not about these kings' relationship to each other as they were warring, and allying, but it's about their relationship to the word of God. Jehoram was indecisive. He was irresolute in his relationship to the word of God, and it led him into grave spiritual peril. Jehoshaphat, sincere but imperfect in his relationship to the word of God, and yet, by God's grace, receiving mercy, great mercy from a merciful God. But then, the worst of them, the absolute ignorance of the word of God with King Mesha and the horrific tragedy that resulted. Now we must admit again, as we look at all of these, our relationship to the word of God, again, we've all fallen short. We've all fallen short. We all deserve judgment. We deserve wrath to come, not just upon us, but against us as well. Uh, now, we can't plead ignorance of God's word, complete ignorance, but indecisiveness sometimes, irresoluteness in our obedience to God's word, imperfection, absolutely, certainly. And yet, this passage reminds us there is hope of mercy, nonetheless. And how is there hope of mercy? Well, it's through the true Davidic king. How, why did Jehoram receive mercy here? God said to him, rightly so, I wouldn't even look at you unless you were with my true king, the true Davidic king, and I have respect to him. I look upon his face, and therefore I will look upon you. The true Davidic king, who was not indecisive, irresolute, not even imperfect in the slightest, in his relationship to the word of God, in his submission to that word, in his obedience of every part of it, who was absolutely, perfectly obedient and submissive at all times to the word of God, and who therefore, as that true Davidic king, earned the blessings of that covenant, again, for himself, but also for his people, for all who trust in him. A king, his perfect relationship with the word of God, and yet who also sacrificed himself. Sacrificed himself for the disobedience and failings of his people. Not a king like we see here at the end of this chapter. Not a king who sacrifices his firstborn son to transfer his false god's wrath from himself to his enemies. That's what he was trying to do but rather a God who sacrifices his firstborn son. A king 
who willingly sacrifices his own life to transfer the wrath of God from his enemies to himself. That's the kind of king that we have. That is the kind of merciful God that we have. And that is how we can find mercy, by trusting alone in that king, his perfect obedience to all of the word of God, and yet his willing sacrifice to take upon himself the wrath that we deserved. Our king, the true Davidic king, Jesus Christ. Again, it should be said to us what Elisha said to Jehoram. Uh, I would not look at you or see you if it were not that I have regard for my true king, for Jesus Christ. We ask God, look on him, but pardon me. Look upon the face of Jesus and therefore accept me. Praise God for such a king. Praise God for such mercy, mercy upon mercy that we receive from this God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for another passage of your word that, yes, is convicting. Yes, that serves as a strong warning to us, an example to us. And yet, ultimately, that points us to our true king, your son, Jesus Christ, and to the sacrifice that he made because of our imperfect obedience to your word. Father, look upon him and accept us. Help us to partake of the supper now to remember his sacrifice, but not just to remember it intellectually, but to remember it in true saving faith, confessing and believing that his sacrifice, what we remember here, is our only hope of mercy. Thank you for that mercy. Thank you for that Savior. Thank you for our King. In his name we pray. Amen.